Hi, everyone. I am Jen Vietchner, a senior writer at Fortune, as well as the co-founder of The Ledger, Fortune's multimedia franchise focused on the intersection of money and technology. This afternoon, we have a fantastic panel on digital currency and financial inclusion, which is an incredibly important topic right now, particularly in a pandemic um, where the issue of economic inequality has gotten all the more stark. Um, and there's greater interest in ever, than ever in uh, innovations such as central bank digital currencies, um, as well as what I could call a traditional cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. Um, and yet there is so much skepticism in terms of banking still. Um, one of our panelists, Diego, highlighted in his paper that in a survey, 56% of the unbanked told the FDIC that they are not at all interested in having a bank account. And I think all of our panelists today are going to be talking a little bit about what we can do to address that issue. Um, I'd like to invite anyone watching to ask questions. You can submit your questions using the, the hashtag CatoMonCon on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, as well as Slido. And now I'd like to introduce our panel. First, we have Michael Casey, who's the Chief Content Officer of Coindesk. Thanks, Michael, for being here. Thanks for having me, Jen. And Cato, thank you. And we have Charles Calamiris, who is the Chief Economist and Senior Deputy Comptroller for Economics at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Hi, Charles. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And last but not least, we have Diego Zuluaga, the Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies for the Center of Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute. Welcome, Diego. Hi, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. So each person is going to present um, their some comments for the next uh, 12 minutes or so, and then we'll dive into the Q&A. So I would like to invite um, Michael Casey. The floor is yours. Great. Thanks, Jen. So I'm going to say that like, if I was in a live Cato conference right now, um, I'd be asking for a show of hands and I'd say to people like, you know, which US financial law, which, which significant part of financial legislation had its 50th anniversary last month. Um, and this being a Cato audience, I probably would expect to be actually a bunch of hands up that would answer this question. But it's one that I think most people wouldn't know the answer to. And that answer is, since I have no way of knowing what those hands are, I will answer it. Uh, it's the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, and I, I think that the key point about the bank secrecy, one of the key points is I don't think nearly enough people understand how significant as a sort of early process, the beginning in the process of what is ultimately the most pervasive system of financial surveillance that the world has ever seen uh, was born out of this. This was up in 19, 1970. People are aware, of course, of the NSA, but not the BSA. And this is, you know, something that I think really needs to be addressed because it's absolutely vital, I would argue, and how we deal with the regulatory framework that's emerged out of it uh, for this question of financial inclusion that we'll be talking about in this panel. Um, you know, look, over the years, there's been um, multiple amendments to that law. We've had things like the war on drugs, you know, there's, there's espionage of the Cold War, terrorism, wars, financial crises, all of these things have spawned ever deeper rules and regulations that came out of the BSA and a bunch of other uh, aspects of it, specifically for banks and requiring them to monitor their customers and to build up, you know, identification processes and then report on what they see as suspicious activity. Um, but it's not just the BSA, out of it really in the context that came up out of this, this, this sense that the financial system would be used to monitor the activities of, of, of customers. Uh, a huge 
array of complex regulations enforcement agencies, kind of an alphabet soup of concepts like KYC, AML, CFT, uh, know your customer, anti-money laundering and, 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 and uh, counter counterfinancing terrorism uh, being there. There's also you know, the FinCEN, that is the, the financial um, the crimes enforcement network and things like the FATF, which is the kind of the global manifestation of this, the Financial Action Task Force, where a whole set of standards and rules are established, all of it really feeding through to what is essentially a US-run system because the dollar being the centerpiece of the global economy with the reserve currency that it is, means that the flow of, of traffic in terms of financial transactions passing through the US gives the US this critical gatekeeper role by which these rules and controls and systems of banks knowing their customers and banks knowing their, their counterparty banks customers and building that big network of control really ultimately comes down to a significant amount of power for the United States. Uh, and I think it's important to highlight this because if we talk about, you know, in the context of digital currencies that have been the, the key theme of this, this conference, people focus on right now the fact that China is building this central bank digital currency. Um, and it's described in somewhat alarming terms, and I think legitimately, uh, as a panopticon, as, as something that uh, will be uh, as an all-encompassing surveillance system of people's transactions. And I don't think we should forgive that or be, be uh, in any way not concerned about that. But I think it's also very important to remember that the U.S. has built a global system of financial surveillance that is all-pervasive. Uh, and in fact, I think that it's so pervasive and, um, and, and, and that it, it may be running its course. Uh, and, and stoking essentially a backlash whereby countries like Iran, China and Russia are specifically saying that they have an interest in building digital technologies that can bypass that process, digital currencies, precisely because the, the sanctions and the control that the US uses, um, you know, goes against their interests. And, and the fact is these technologies will potentially enable that. But that discussion is really for a different panel. This one's really about financial inclusion. And here's where I say this financial surveillance system comes into, comes into play. Uh, now, the, the big question though is, is it, is it even you know, working? We've got you know, 1.6 to $4 trillion worth of money laundering every year, according to the IMF. That's about two to, two to 5% of the global GDP. But the fact that it's such a wide range should tell you something, right? Well, that's not, that's not laundering that has been caught that's an estimation of how much is there so we have this system we, you know, we we don't really know the counterfactual whether or not the system has has captured this or not but there's pretty a lot of indications that that in some respects it doesn't work i mean uh fincen you know released there was a leak of documents from fincen recently showing that there was trillions of dollars worth of sars that is suspicious activity reports out there but not necessarily action on that now that that may or may not be because of the strategies that enforcement agents use to to deal with this but we also know from the Panama Papers recently that um, you know there's all this infrastructure, legal infrastructure, that uh, people looking to evade sanctions, whether it's for money laundering or tax evasion, have to their avail. Mossack Fonseca, the famous uh, law firm in Panama, has just enabled this huge array of money to move around the system without you know essentially avoiding all of that that, that surveillance. So it's clear that the rich and the powerful have got mechanisms to evade. But the reality is the poor have no choice. Uh, and, and the thing is this system actually imposes a real burden on their access. And there's two ways in which that happens. One is that 
Uh, if you happen to come from a place that has a very underdeveloped identification system, you know, you're in a sort of, let's call it a failed state, or there's just a high level of corruption, there's a significant degree of mistrust in the mechanism by which people are identified and credit reports and the like are built, then, you know, it's much harder for you to get a bank account because you just don't rise to the level, the threshold of expectation that banks have. Uh, so that's a key factor, of course, in the fact that we've got 1.7 billion people in the world unbanked and many more who live in this kind of underbanked environment who don't have access to, to, to credit and to, to other financial services as a result of this problem. But I would say an even bigger problem in many respects is the fact that the, the, the compliance requirements of this ever-expanding surveillance uh, system uh, the monitoring and the and the and the and the buildup of identification systems imposes a huge cost on banks themselves, and uh, it, it is you know the, the, ever since things like the HSBC fine, which was fined for uh, it, it money laundering um, activities with Mexican drug lords, um, and and copped a 1.9 billion dollar fine as this, you've kind of had this fear amongst banks that Damocles' sword is hanging over their heads. And uh, to, to avoid being caught by that, they just are much more inclined to say no than they used to be toward the onboarding of customers. Uh, there's this talk that, you know, the, the, the most powerful people on a, on a bank floor these days is the compliance officer, not the, not the traders. Um, and that's led to this big problem, you know, called de-risking, whereby even though uh, there may or may not be any particular risk in dealing with a certain place, banks sort of pare back their risk in terms of exposure to uh, jurisdictions that are perceived to be higher risk, or at least perceived to be too expensive uh, in terms of the compliance to justify the small gain they may get. So perfectly reasonable and reliable jurisdictions like Bermuda, the Bahamas, Barbados and others are constantly being de-risked, which is also why, interestingly, they are at the forefront, I would argue, of a lot of this digital currency um, uh, innovation right now. So, so you've got this, this ongoing um, you know, resistance amongst the banking system to onboard uh, supposedly higher risk or, or let's just say uh, 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 lesser of a, of, a, of a payoff opportunities because of all this cost. And then sort of we bring Bitcoin into this, right? So Bitcoin, uh, you know, what, why does Bitcoin exist? You know, a cynical view would say it's deliberately seeking to avoid that legal system. Uh, that it's designed to bypass the gatekeeping controls of the financial system. But really, I mean, I, I just see it as just offering the prospect of intermediary free exchange. It was designed to be like cash, a bearer instrument uh, with digital qualities that allows one person to exchange value with another. Um, and, and this is really where the opportunity for financial inclusion lies. Let's put aside the fact that Bitcoin's volatility and some of those other problems have, have meant that it hasn't necessarily taken off hugely as a remittance tool and some of that is starting to change um, but it's, it's this, this this concept that if you can remove the intermediation from the process particularly in cross-border exchanges where there are multiple hops and and all these you know clearing houses and banks and regulatory constraints from country to country the cost of moving money is just is just far too great for somebody who doesn't have enough of it to be able to participate in that so so direct peer-to-peer -peer exchange lowers that cost and creates the possibility, therefore, for financial inclusion, as well as the fact that, of course, you know, I don't need to identify myself to participate in this system. So it's a, you know, it, it certainly raises this opportunity. We know that when M-Pesa was 
introduced in Kenya that it has led to significant advances in financial inclusion, precisely because, again, this is a digital bearer instrument that is a peer-to-peer -peer means of, of, of transaction. Now, of course, the big problem for, for regulators is, you know, they do need to catch these bad guys. There's, there's people uh, moving money around the world involved in incredibly nefarious activities, and Bitcoin is being used for money laundering and other evasive actions. I would still argue that cash is probably a better way if, you, if you're trying to do a big arms deal, maybe you know, get yourself a, 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 a big uh, suitcase or a, a briefcase full of uh, Swiss francs, I think are probably the best way to go. Uh, not nearly as traceable as Bitcoin, but the reality is you know, with things like privacy, mixing services and so forth, there is a lot of interesting ways in which this technology can enable this level of evasion. And once the Lightning Network is built on top of Bitcoin, it too will, will, will create a much more private environment that's harder for regulators to get on. So, you know, this is a problem. We, we certainly don't want to have uh, to tell hospitals and schools that those ransomware attackers, uh, you know, who, who are demanding Bitcoin in return for sort of unlocking those sensitive documents that are being seized all the time, that we can't do anything about them. So, you know, inevitably, there has been a real comprehensive effort amongst regulators to control the on-ramps into these places. They can't control Bitcoin, but they can control all the on-ramps, all the uh, custodial exchanges and wallet services that actually act in behalf of their customers. That's the nexus point which has come in. There's now been the, and, but this has become more and more comprehensive. And now we have the FATF rule, that is the travel rule, which is specifically uh, uh, aimed at uh, making sure that a similar model to that which exists in the financial system with KYC exists from wallet to wallet to wallet. Um, and that ultimately you're now building this kind of almost bifurcated world in which custodial wallets can't really meet the non-custodial wallets, uh, creating you know, a, a huge barrier, I would say, to the network effects that could come out of that. There, is, there are people sort of shutting down mixing services. This is one of the privacy tools. Larry Dean Harmon from Helix uh, got hit with a $60 million fine for uh, enabling, uh, it seems like, evasion that was passing through Alpha Bay, the dark net uh, service. Um, not wanting to say, take a position either way on whether or not that was legitimized, but it does raise really important questions about whether you can actually, whether financial uh, regulation of this type should be used to actually regulate technology. Because ultimately this is just a technology, a piece of software, a, a form of speech as has been sort of consistently argued, this raises questions about, you know, constraints on innovation and liberty. So a huge process uh, that looks like it is building a network of control over this you know, emerging technology. Uh, and the question is like, how do we, how do we, what can we do to resolve this trade-off between the need for security in the system, the need for innovation, and of course, financial uh, inclusion. And I think that governments should be looking hard at ways in which they can actually find the, what I would say is a, a, a risk-based uh, uh, approach married with some of the advantages of this technology that may help for surveillance in a way that doesn't necessarily impede upon people's privacy and, and sort of build this whole uh, constraint on terms of access. When I was at MIT, we did a project looking at how we might enable um, undocumented immigrants in the United States to send money back to Mexico at the time um, using a mechanism by which we would have a unique identifier that had no way to get into their personal identification out of it, making it easier for them to participate in the system, but at the same time having a tracing system that would allow uh, a regulator somewhere to actually look at where illicit activity was and then attack that big node rather than the individuals. Uh, unfortunately, 
change of government at the time meant that working on something like that about Mexico was not exactly something that we could do very comfortably. But I'm very pleased to see the IBM MIT Watson Lab is working on these sorts of things to show that you can use the Bitcoin network to get a meta view of where the risks are rather than go after the individuals. There's, uh, the, there's also the idea that, that digital identity can be improved by some of this technology, that we can look for ways to, to enable people to use their online data as a way to prove their creditworthiness again, without necessarily identifying them, sort of having them emerge as a node that can be allowed into a system without necessarily having to dig deeply into a system of identity that they don't necessarily have or that would compromise them in some way. So there's, there's various ways you could lean into this, but, but I would say the most important thing is to be able to deal with this risk-based threshold. We have limits already in the system that uh, essentially require very minimal, if any, identification for amounts of $1,000 around the world. And in the United States, it's actually $3,000 for remittances. But the reality is that banks and financial, financial institutions are just too scared to, to go into this, to, to work with some of these people uh, because of that kind of democratically soared risk. Uh, and ultimately, therefore, are, uh, are just not engaging, even though those thresholds exist. So I think it's incumbent upon governments to, in addition to using some of these you know, digital solutions, to, to, to make a very clear message to financial institutions that they will not be penalized for, for enabling uh, access with these thresholds in mind. Yeah, thank um, you, Michael, for those ideas and that's, thoughts. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to close it. Thanks, Jen. It's a great, great conclusion. Uh, and now we uh, will move on to Charles um, from the OCC. Thank you so much, Charles. And uh, I will let you take it away. Thanks, Jen. It's often said that to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Uh, and so where I'm sitting these days is at the OCC. And we spend a lot of our time thinking about chartering banks. So it won't come as a surprise to you that my take on financial inclusion is going to come from that perspective. So financial inclusion is a big topic. We have a lot of initiatives at the OCC relating to it, something called Project REACH in particular, um, having to do with dealing with credit invisibles and finding ways to improve information. We have a lot of initiatives that look at how different regulations just as Michael was just pointed out, it's a much broader actually set of issues of how different regulations may be discouraging financial inclusion. But what I wanna focus on in my remarks is what the potential remedies for financial inclusion might be that come from the chartering authority itself. And this is an area uh, where the OCC is taking some really interesting steps in recent months. Um, to make it clear that we're welcoming fintech firms and others who have sort of novel business models to apply for national bank charters. And so my paper for today is entitled Chartering the Fintech Future. And the broad themes of the paper are first that fintech is not just a major improvement in efficiency for financial transactions, but that it also is a major potential improvement for financial inclusion. And secondly, the other theme is that chartering fintech companies, those that have business models that focus on financial inclusion particularly, but also all fintech companies can be a way to empower them to be more efficient, more effective, uh, and so that's really the theme I want to 
try to develop for you that the OCC has a, an approach toward welcoming, let's just say, novel bank uh, models as national bank charters. I want to start just by raising the, the question and then answering it. What is definitional of what the boundaries should be for what you would consider a bank that you'd want to charter? And as a financial historian, as well as an economist, I, I like to think about things that way. And so I'd say a good way to approach that is by looking at the history of successfully chartered banks, which gives us, I think, a pretty clear answer of how we approach that question. In particular, if you go back to the first chartered banks of the modern era, really starting around 1600 and to the present, what you see is that they, either were involved in a payments technology or a lending technology or both. Um, often they weren't doing both, by the way, they were doing one or the other. Um, and furthermore, there is no particular technology that defines what's going on in all those charters because just as FinTech is showing us how much technology is changing today, technology has always been changing. So if you were going to look at, for example, the first banks, including the famous Dutch Wisselbank, um, it didn't make any loans for the first couple centuries, pretty much. It was uh, a clearing house for international bills of exchange. Um, and that was absolutely key to establishing the international system of trade and imperialism that developed in the 17th century so well. So that bank had, had nothing to do with deposits in particular. You'll hear a lot of people in the US today saying, uh, deposits are the key foundation of banking. Well, deposits, and that they'll say it has to be bundled with lending. But we don't think that's true. We think that um, just as the Wiesel Bank or all sorts of other banks since then have had particular business models either focusing on payments or fo focusing on lending or both, that that's really the defining feature. Um, national banks, as some of you may know, which began in 1863, were really conceived as a place where there would be currency issued by banks backed by government bonds. But soon, as one of the controllers of the 19th century said, what was incidental to banking, which was deposit taking, became essential to banking. It became the rule so that they were founded with this idea about note, fund, note issuance uh, backed by government bonds and grew to have sort of two parallel banking businesses, one that was that and another that was lending funded by deposits. And then, of course, in the 20th century, we saw credit card banks established which were doing a very different kind of business. Again, not focusing on uh, loans and deposits, but focusing on credit cards, which are sort of simultaneously both a loan lending product and a payments product, and very different from traditional loans or deposits. So I think you get the point. Banks are, chartered banks have since their inception, really not been defined by a particular kind of financial claim or technology but really by these activities, payments or lending and, and often both. In fact, if you go and look up the word bank and look at its etymology, 
there actually are two separate etymologies to the word bank and people are still struggling over which one is right. One of them is bank coming from the word bench in Latin, which means a place where you perform exchanges. Another is bank as in like a hill, a mound, which could refer to a bundle of loans. And so banks have, the word bank sort of captures that dual aspect, but it typically, as I said, is not bundled. Often the banks have done one or the other. And in fact, that brings me to my next point, which is generally, as you look at these FinTech firms, especially the ones involved in financial inclusion, of course you notice, well, they're not only are they not doing the traditional banking products, but they're also not doing often combinations. That is most FinTechs specialize on one side or the other, either as a lending technology or as a payments technology. And actually when we teach MBAs how to think about business, we tend to tell them it's typically better to focus than it is to bundle. Bundling has to be justified to be economically a good idea, has to be justified by big synergy between the two. And uh, there are two kinds of models of those synergies that explain why historically banks have sometimes decided to bundle the two sides, that is payments and lending. Um, I actually am the author of one of them with Charles Kahn. Um, and the other view, they're not uh, mutually exclusive, by Loretta Mester and Leonard Nakamura. And both of them, I won't go into the details of them, but what but they both have in common is the idea that it's because of the information problems that are inherent in bank lending, as opposed to, let's say, the corporate bond market or other kinds of um, more transparent kinds of lending instruments, because of those information problems, it can be more effective to bundle banking with uh, bank lending with deposit taking. I won't go into that in detail, except to recognize that that's the common denominator, information. Now, of course, enter FinTech. And what we see is, first of all, just the fact that unbundling is clearly demonstrating itself to be more profitable, more efficient as a business model. Um, and what the other thing that we're seeing is that the typical ideas relating to information in lending, like let's say the Mester Nakamura model that says you need to have deposit taking as part of lending because you learn about your customer by monitoring their deposits and that helps you make better loans. Well, of course that makes sense, but in today's world, we have so many other ways to learn about our customers to make loans that we don't, I would say, really need the inf that information from deposits. So if you're aware, there's one company now operating in the US called Oak North. Oak North ran a very successful bank lending business in the UK. And what they do is they sort of um, put together thousands of different databases to track individual small businesses that are borrowers and be able to identify soft and hard information about them in real time that's extremely useful for lending. And last time I checked, after several years of operating in the UK, they had uh, essentially zero non-performing loans because they were able to identify problems in the businesses that were their clients before the problems even emerged, before the businesses were even aware of them. And so they were able to deal with them. So you get my point, both in small business lending and in consumer lending, we have all this new information. And so lenders don't need to bundle with deposits to get 
the clearing information about the customers, they have so many other sources of information. And, you know, generally bundling businesses is, is not efficient because it removes your focus. Um, and so generally speaking, um, we as economists don't really expect bundling to be the rule, but rather the exception. And I think that's what FinTech is teaching us. Also geographic integration, we tend to think banks need to operate in the local environment to be able physically, to be able to do that information collection. But of course that's not important anymore with FinTech. So um, of course, from an efficiency standpoint, it makes a lot of sense you can see these new models in fintechs. But now what about financial inclusion? Um, Michael mentioned some statistics about the, the whole world. I'll just focus on the US. We tend to say that about 20% of the US population is unbanked or underbanked. Um, what are the problems there? And what can regulators or chartering authorities do about them? Well, when you look at the surveys of people who are underbanked or unbanked, they talk about a few problems. I won't go through the whole list, but let me get just touch on some of them. One of them is just the physical costs per customer can be very high in the traditional banking setting for serving customers that have small dollar accounts, whether it's small dollar borrowing or small dollar transacting. Um, just the physical costs of managing the customer relationship are very high. Of course, the great thing about fintech is it can operate with much lower physical costs. So it's inherently better able to serve customers um, with small dollar accounts. That's just a physical fact of fintech. Secondly, new information sources like the kind I referred to before are creating new opportunities for gathering information cost effectively about customers. Even customers who are the so-called credit invisibles, that is those who don't have FICO scores because we can use their history in paying their rents or their history in paying their utility bills to develop track records for them. And of course, there are lots of people doing that business right now very profitably. And then another barrier has been lack of financial literacy and lack of trust in traditional financial institutions. And there, fintech firms have been particularly innovative in finding ways to create educational products online that help to bridge those gaps. What this means is they're, lead, they're producing through all of these kinds of combination of new contributions, innovative ideas for new products and services that provide better service at lower cost, particularly on small dollar transactions, and particularly for so-called invisibles, that is people without FICO scores. Okay, so great. FinTech is clearly amazingly important for financial inclusion. So what is, what's so important though about chartering fintechs, especially as national banks? And the answer is, well, chartering does two things. First, it gives you a national reach coming through uh, our chartering capability of the national banking system of giving you an ability to operate throughout the United States. That's very important. Secondly, and this is something that there's a lot of research on, including by myself. The examination uh, function of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency has been one of its great successes for the last one and a half centuries. And that, those examinations create market credibility. 
So if a firm wants to have a national bank charter to improve its national reach and to create greater credibility from oversight, from auditing its books, that's something that we think makes a lot of sense. And so the point is, if you wanna know why are we welcoming to novel banks, one of the reasons is because we think that it's going to be very helpful for financial inclusion to do so. But I wanna emphasize, we're not arguing that the boundaries should encompass of chartering should encompass fintechs that don't want to be chartered as banks. Because for some companies, the charter might not be cost effective and might actually reduce their ability to serve customers. So I wanna emphasize the OCC is not out there trying to uh, take over the whole fintech realm. We're just there thinking that for firms that like those aspects of the national bank charter, why not be flexible and let them enter? That seems like a great note to uh, end on for now. We can definitely come back to the topic, but I wanna make sure that we have time to get to- Thank you, Jen. Yes, that, that's a good spot to end. Yeah, I know you have. I know you have more, um, but, we'll, but we'll definitely come back to it. But um, Diego, I know you have an interesting uh, paper that you've written. So um, please tell us about that. Well, thank you very much, Jen. We've been talking throughout the day about the alternative between central bank digital currencies and what Tobias Adrian described as synthetic central bank digital currencies. Other people call stable coins. Other people call private digital currencies. Basically, privately issued often, most of the time, dollar-denominated instruments. And in terms of the impact on financial inclusion, I think it is worth questioning the extent to which just having CBDCs, central bank-issued currencies of a digital nature, whether it's accounts or it's tokens, the extent to which that can make a dent on the millions of unbanked in America. There's a lot of emphasis, and I think rightly so, on the high fees that a lot of bank accounts involve for customers on low balances. And sometimes those high fees may be justified because as, as uh, Charlie Colomiris was just pointing out, it is expensive to manage a customer relationship. And if you can't get, can offset that cost with interchange revenue or with um, you know, fees on loans or interest income of another kind, uh, then it's difficult to justify having those customers. Although I think banks really want to serve these people. A lot of the time, it's regulation that's pushed up costs, and it's also made it more difficult to get income from other sources. So, for example, we have a cap on debit card interchange fees, and since then, the proportion of free uh, checking accounts has declined. So there are a lot of drivers, I think, of the uh, high fees that a lot of people cite as making them unbanked. But that reason still only accounts for about a third of the unbanked. If you look at the list of reasons they give to the FDIC, in the biennial survey that the FDIC conducts asking people, first of all, finding out how many people don't and how many people use non-bank financial services, even if they have a bank account, what they call the underbanked, although I don't like the term, I'm gonna focus on the unbanked. Uh, but when they do that survey, a lot of the reasons cited don't have to do with cost. They have to do with privacy. They have to do with trust in banks, as Charlie mentioned. And, and Michael was, I think, very persuasively arguing that a lot of it also has to do with the potential for surveillance. And government mandates on surveillance of accounts not only discourage people from using bank accounts, but they also make it more expensive to serve them. And I don't know if this is a stat that Michael cited, but I've seen in a survey of the St. Louis Fed that community banks cite the Bank Secrecy Act as the single most expensive regulation, mm -hmm. accounting for about a quarter of compliance cost. Yeah. So there are a lot of different drivers uh, for people to be 
unbanked. And I'm not sure that the provision of very inexpensive or perhaps even free retail accounts by the Federal Reserve uh, could help reduce that number to something acceptable, something as close to other Western countries, you know, 99% coverage as they have in Canada or the United Kingdom. Uh, I think there are other drivers there, which is why I think that in any world in which we want to encourage digital currencies, we cannot simply rely on central bank digital currencies. We have to allow stable coins, we have to allow intermediated currencies of one kind or another, because they are much more likely to cater to the preferences of the people who don't currently use bank accounts. One thing that central banks struggle a lot with is interoperability with other central bank systems. So they talk a lot about making their systems compatible with other central banks so it becomes less expensive to make cross-border transfers. Uh, they talk a lot about making systems compatible with those of the private sector so that you have actual ubiquity in the payment system. And that's something that FedNow is trying to achieve, although even that will take at least until 2023 or 2024 to be realized. So I think pinning all of our hopes, regardless of what we think about, you know, the, the efficiency of central banks performing this task, even if you believe in, in the efficiency of the central bank doing this, there are pockets of the customer base that are not well served by a fundamentally domestic institution like the central bank. If you look at the unbanked population of America, a disproportionate share speak Spanish only or as the main language. They do a lot of remittances, they send a lot of money abroad, they keep a lot of money in cash because some of them are undocumented, but also because some of them don't want to pay the fees in, in, uh, it, that, that banks charge or because they would like to have it available to them so that they can send it regularly through their remittance provider. And banks are very expensive to use right now for remittance provision. So the unbanked population has very specific needs that don't represent, I think almost by definition, don't represent those of the population at large. And I'm not sure that central banks necessarily understand the socioeconomics of that segment to be able to serve them uniquely. The other thing that I think has been under-researched so far in central banks' work on CBDCs is the customer-facing bit. So if you read the Bank of England's discussion paper on CBDC, and if you, look the more if you look at the more recent European Central Bank report on the digital euro, I think they have an excellent discussion about the interaction with the commercial banking system, the ways in which they would have to address the potential flight of capital during times of a loss of confidence. I think the sort of the back office stuff and the infrastructure related elements of CBDC setup, they're at the forefront of their minds, which is great. But what we're talking about ultimately is retail provision of financial services. And banks, central banks don't have much of that experience at all. I mean, I guess they issued cash, but cash is you know relatively low maintenance once you issue it compared to electronic money. Uh, but making their own systems compatible with mobile apps, with non-bank payments providers, as well as with banks, will be challenging. And if you intend to become a retail financial institution and do so basically as the only one, maybe with some limits on quantity, maybe with playing around with the interest on reserve rates so that you discourage a lot of people putting all of their funds into CBDC accounts, but even with those constraints, I think you will never reach the level of coverage that we would expect in a truly inclusive financial system. Uh, so I think that is absolutely a concern. The final thing I would say is that in terms of the design of, uh, you know, I think central banks can really use this opportunity of CBDC creation as a way to open up their master accounts or reserves accounts, as they call them at the Bank of England. Their, their master accounts to non-bank financial institutions. 
and I know this is Comptroller Brooks's second step in bringing payment systems into the national banking system. It's, you know, first of all, you give them a special purpose charter, but then you give them access directly to Fedwire by giving them an account at the Fed. That requires the Fed to act. But I think this is a great way to liberalize the payments infrastructure of the United States. But even that will require private firms to conduct most of the intermediation and the customer relationship. And we know that there are very big firms that already have launched their own stable coins, some of them financial, some of them technological, uh, working with financial institutions. And we should take advantage of that. And we shouldn't discourage that or make it subject to asymmetrically heavy regulations compared to, you know, not, not like for like in terms of the risk posed compared to CBDCs. So I think when we actually look at the evidence around America's financial inclusion problem and who is best positioned to deliver it, I think even if pragmatically I would welcome for reasons of liberalization, the creation of CBDCs, I think having the private alternative there will always be beneficial and there's no reason to discourage it. Great, thank you so much um, for that uh, point of view. Um, I know we have some audience questions coming in, so please don't forget to, um, if you do have questions, you can submit them using the hashtag CatoMonCon. Um, but I have a couple of questions of my own that I'd love to start with. Um, and I wanted to follow up on, on a point that Charles made in terms of, um, you know, speaking, talking about fintechs and, um, you know, the ability to offer non-bank fintechs the, uh, the opportunity to, to ob obtain a banking charter. What's not clear to me, you know, when I talk to fintechs, um, not all of them desire, not all of them want to become banks. In fact, some of them are pretty adamant that they do not want to become banks because they don't want to deal with that. And in fact, they feel that they can have plenty of impact on financial inclusion and operate, you know, a strong business without actually being a bank. What's the incentive for them to actually get a bank charter? What's going to make them do that? And you are muted, so I have to ask you to un unmute, please, to so we can hear you. Yeah, so I think it's, it's mainly, as I said, the National Bank Charter uh, gives them national reach, which is just so cost-effective in dealing with uh, regulations having to do with customer contacts and other such things. But it also is um, giving them credibility in the market because they are subjecting themselves to the world's greatest examination authority. And I think that that's really always been part of the value proposition for national banks. Not all bankers, even historically, wanted to be national bankers. But part of the value proposition was having access to the reputational benefits that come from everyone in the market knowing what the national bank examination process is. So as I said, it, it's not for everyone. It's never been for everyone. But it is for some. And I can tell you without uh, naming particulars that I'm not at all concerned about a lack of interest in fintech firms becoming novel national banks. Um, and that's, uh, that, to me, it's very clear that for some of them, there's clearly a business logic. And I think it's coming mainly from those two things and maybe from other things that I, I haven't understood yet, but it's um, clearly very appealing. Does that apply also to cryptocurrency firms? I mean, I know there are some cryptocurrency firms whose CEOs don't even want to set foot in the United States now for literal fear of being arrested. I mean, it seems like, you know, to jump from that to actually becoming a bank is a big divide. So, you know, we're currently considering exactly what would be business models 
that are coming out of, let's say, stable value crypto that could be the right business models for a national bank charter? And also, how would the examination process look? So, but I, we're not just considering it in some vague sense. We're considering it in a very uh, studied sense. We're, we're, there are lots of people at the OCC who are looking at that question. And I, I think it's a really interesting way to go. And I, in fact, I want to respond to two points that my fellow panelists made. One um, that um, Diego made about crypto and access to Fedwire. And I agree with him that that could be interesting. But of course, when you start looking at stable value cryptocurrencies, part of the attraction is that they don't have to deal through Fedwire. That the, the decentralized bilateral network of blockchain is, uh, has a lot of features. There was a New York Fed study, for example, called a pre-mortem of cyber attack, sort of anticipating that Fedwire would create, uh, I'm sorry, that the, that the current centralized network will create lots of negative spillover effects that there will be a cyber attack and that a very large part of the banking system could be crippled temporarily as a result. That just does, won't happen in a decentralized blockchain-based network. The, the other thing I wanna to respond to is Michael's point about surveillance. I think that his idea coming out of that MIT lab, I think is really spot on. And let me give an example of that coming out of crypto stable value coins. So if you have crypto stable value coins, one of the things that new technologies I think are gonna allow us to do is to have something which one producer refers to as selective anonymity, which is the ability to communicate aspects of your identity without communicating everything about your identity. And that can be done in partnership with identity confirmation authorities like state governments that issue driver's licenses and things like that. Um, and you may, that can reduce tax avoidance and it can reduce money laundering without having all of the intrusion that Michael was referring to. So I actually think both from the standpoint of network stability and also reducing the cost of surveillance while improving the effectiveness of anti-criminal surveillance, that cryptocurrency is stable value crypto coins are potentially a big improvement. And notice that if they were chartered, that could really facilitate the uh, examination of their algorithms to be sure that they were effectively um, involved in that sort of activity. So I'm not, again, I'm not saying everyone needs to be chartered, but if you were running a cryptocurrency business and you wanted to create a credible signal of that selective anonymity, what better way than to have the OCC actually examining your algorithms to verify that they are what they say they are. So again, I think this, we have to rethink what regulation is. It doesn't have to be this, you know, destructive, costly thing. It can actually empower good business models. Uh, and call that an optimistic view. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I think we can always, always use more optimism. Um, but I wanna dig a little bit deeper into, you know, the idea of cryptocurrency as, um, a tool that could uh, advance financial inclusion. And, and you know, I was interested to hear kind of Michael and Diego present, you know, sort of parallel but different views on that. I mean, Diego, you talked a lot about, you know, the opportunity not just for um, government-sponsored essential bank uh, digital currencies, but also for private, you know, stable coins and the like. Um, but Michael, you seem to also make a good case, um, you know, for Bitcoin itself, um, you know, as, as a potential tool for financial inclusion. And this is, I think, where we it gets controversial when you talk about cryptocurrency 
and financial inclusion. You know, I know I, I was interviewing Ajay Banga, the current CEO of MasterCard a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him about this. He's been a big proponent of financial inclusion. And I said, well, what about Bitcoin? And he basically said, you know, and I know, Michael, you had said to put aside the volatility, but I think this is the sticking point. Because he said, can you imagine somebody who's financially excluded trading in a way to get into inclusion through a, current, a currency that could cost the equivalent of two Coca-Cola bottles today and 21 tomorrow? That's not a way to get them into inclusion. That's a way to make them scared of the financial system. Um, I guess, you know, I'd love to get, get you, uh, Diego and Michael to, to respond to that if you would. But I mean, Diego, do you see Bitcoin as having the sim similar potential to advance financial inclusion or what's your view there? I think it can, in, particularly in jurisdictions where their domestic central bank issued currencies are not very reliable and they have capital controls, so they cannot easily dollarize or move funds abroad and that sort of thing. The thing I see about Bitcoin is that the instability of value and the fixed supply of Bitcoins, which is asymptotic and you know eventually it's going to get, well, never will actually get to 21 million, but you know it will get closer and closer to it. Mm. That, that flexibility, you know, we, we have a lacking flexibility in terms of macroeconomic policy. What I mean by that is that Bitcoin is not well-placed to respond to short-term shocks. So you need an intermediary to use Bitcoin as a commodity, as a commodity that gives confidence in people that they can redeem pieces of paper for Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself is not being exchanged. What you exchange are pieces, in this case, not pieces of paper, but you know, electronic units whose quantity would be altered in response to different macroeconomic circumstances. So you would have a role for financial intermediaries in that, even if you operated under a quote-unquote Bitcoin standard. But uh, that's if Bitcoin were to become generally accepted money. We see examples of, of Bitcoin adoption in places where not relying on an intermediary is particularly important. And Joel Carlson talked about Venezuela earlier, but we have other examples. And, and indeed, Bitcoin mining has happened in some jurisdictions where that was the case as well. So I definitely see Bitcoin as a complement. I didn't mean to diminish it. I just see a lot of the discussion now having shifted so rapidly towards CBDCs that I think people are ignoring that this was initially a private innovation and CBDCs were a response to you know central banks realizing that the game was shifting away from them. Yeah. What about you, Mike? I mean, you know you said to put aside the, the volatility, but I mean, are you, are you essentially assuming that the volatility will eventually subside, you know, as Bitcoin climbs above 20,000 potentially? I mean, I think eventually it does. I mean, I'm not, but again, this is only if you buy into the idea that, that it has this fundamental role in the global economy, you know, into the future, right? And I, and I think that, that's, that we're seeing the rise in price at the moment reflects some of that expectation, not to say that it's a prediction that it will, but the, but their people are starting to converse around the concerns they have for, you know, essentially uh, sort of fragility in the global financial system at the moment, right? With the Fed on a tear, just just quant in, in, infinite quantitative easing and, and no one really quite knowing where the end is in sight because this is the only tool they have in, in you know, in, in, in the box. So ultimately, in the light of that, there's this concern about, are we politicizing central banks? Are we getting to a point where the system is broken? Is there gonna be continued faith in the dollar? You know, at the same time that China is building a CBDC, in that environment, Bitcoin starts to become this very interesting question about it, you know, around its digital gold status, right? So so I think that 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 is probably a phased process. I've always thought that Bitcoin, I mean, maybe I, maybe I did. No, in the early days, I did think Bitcoin may well become a payment vehicle. But I think that it was always clear to everybody that the volatility in the short term is going to just be exactly as you described it, something that would be an impediment to, to that functionality. But, but there's a sort of 
phased approach to it that says once this thing becomes a, a sort of a, an accepted component of the global financial ecosystem, and it is a, a, a store of value, not in the sense of it's totally stable, but it's the thing you go back to for that desired digital scarcity in a world where there is no guarantee of scarcity elsewhere, it starts to play this sort of very functional role that I think people will desire in different ways. Does it mean that's the thing that you pay your coffee, pay for your coffee with? I really don't know. But I do think that there's some very interesting ideas emerging around Bitcoin as collateral. Um, you know, there's, there's DeFi at the moment um, is sort of working out ways to take one form of value, collateralizing that, building smart contracts on top of that that allow lending in a different currency. But the thing that the, that the creditor is, is always backed by is something that they feel is stable and, and very and programmable and automatically executionable in a smart contract environment. And that could become Bitcoin, right? It could become this kind of quasi reserve asset that lives outside the, the, the national system and becomes a reserve asset for human beings upon which to build these innovative financial solutions on top of. So I don't know, right? No one has a, has a crystal ball, but I just think that we need to be thinking outside the box about what value this might provide to financial inclusion and everything else because of these other qualities, not necessarily because of its value right now as it's denominated against the dollar. I hope that's helpful because it doesn't necessarily answer the question. Can I get my two cents in on that? Sure. I, my own view is the sooner we stop talking about Bitcoin, the better. <laughs> Bitcoin is not the future of cryptocurrency. It is inherently volatile. My own belief is it will remain so. It's, it's a, it was a brilliant idea, but we can have blockchain with stable value coins that can do everything we want. And people don't want to put thousands of dollars for transactions purposes into something that, that jumps all over the place. And we have a better financial technology, multiple better financial technologies that can actually create the same kinds of ability, but with a stable value. So I just think this, it's also actually very counterproductive because Bitcoin does facilitate criminal activity. As I pointed out, you can have stable value coins that will do something very different there. So I think from a government regulatory standpoint, I find talking to government officials, the the most unproductive thing about the future of getting blockchain-based currencies to happen is that everyone's talking about Bitcoin, which is extremely volatile, not a promising technology for transactions accounts at all, and furthermore, does enable criminal activity. So let's just stop talking about Bitcoin. It was a cute idea. It was a brilliant innovation. It is not the future, guys. Okay, you got, uh, Charlie, you're looking to be trolled, aren't you? I know this. You're gonna crypto Twitter is about to launch itself yeah, on, on Charlie Cal Calamir. Okay. But I want to make sure that we get to the to the audience questions. Um, Diego, there is one for you, and maybe this is this will tie into your answer for it. But um, uh, a person asks, will digital currencies address the trust issues that the unbanked have for traditional banking institutions? What do you think? For Diego. I think they can, they can to some extent. If if you have dollar-denominated stable coins issued by brands that the unbanked use already, and you know this is part of the case that I've made for opening up the chartering system, is that the unbanked do shop in in big brands that would be interested in providing financial services, and they have smartphones. So I don't think they would have a problem using digital wallets. To the extent that you give them brands they recognize and trust, I think you will be able to resolve the trust issue, whether intermediated uh, or not. If I may, before we stop talking about Bitcoin, if I can have just a couple of sentences responding to Charlie, I think 
we haven't replicated yet a ledger that is controlled by no one and actually works, that is, that, that is inviolable, that, that cannot be corrupted in the way that Bitcoin has. So yes, it's very promising technology, but it's not in the past. It is very important that we have something like Bitcoin available that no one controls, but where you can still have transactions and trust the system that it won't be defrauded. Uh, it's, it's, it's really quite unique. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to um, move on to another question, um, which is for Michael. Is there an opportunity to innovate around the on-ramps for Bitcoin, or are these fixtures a feature of the system that cannot be changed? We're already seeing innovation around this concept in, in, in the form of, you know, the, the concept of a decentralized exchange. Uh, I mean, you still have to have the the onboarding asset to be a digital in, in a digital form. So it's this it's this problem of the analog to digital that then sort of gives you this on ramp problem. But it is very interesting to see the emergence of decentralized exchanges where there is no custody requirement uh, on the behalf of the exchange, and 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 it's essentially you know software that through a bunch of smart contracts enables you know one seller to meet the the seller the the, the buyer. Uh, each of whom has their own custody of their of their uh, their assets, and that's the point, right? Once we've got our own custody, it makes it much harder for a regulator to get in and say, "I'm going to control you at this point." So, yes, they're really. I mean, look at the the Dex concept, decentralized exchanges. They are rising rapidly in the DeFi world, in particular, um, and I think there's widespread feeling amongst um, you know many within the uh, crypto community that that is the future of exchange within the crypto world. There's also these very interesting ideas around, you know, zero knowledge proofs, um, M MPC, multi-party computation, homomorphic encryption, lots of big buzzy words, but they ultimately get to this point where you can have a lot more security around the management of those assets without having to worry about your own fallibility for being attacked, but literally nobody can control you know, those keys other than yourself, right? There's a, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on that I think is going to make it harder and harder and harder for regulators to step in and play that gatekeeping role. Mm, interesting. We have time for one more question. Um, and this one comes from David on Slido and it's for Charles. Um, it seems, you know, a very straightforward question about, you know, for what, what type of application should fintechs use um, if they are looking to apply to be chartered, you know, is it the um, special purpose bank application or another charter type? And what should we anticipate for capitalization requirements? So it's up to them. And um, so some of them will want to be trust banks, which is a, a particular kind of charter. Some will just want to be national banks. Um, and I think you're going to see both. Um, he asked also about capital requirements. And the answer uh, there is, we are developing uh, and building on our experience. The OCC has, from a supervisory standpoint, been maintaining capital requirements as a function of cash flow riskiness as a supervisory authority for a very long time. So it's not like just because it comes in doesn't have a lot of tangible assets doesn't mean that we don't know how to prudentially regulate it. So I won't go and get into the details of that, but obviously, um, you know, it's it's the measurement of the volatility of the cash flows that determines the appropriate leverage restrictions. And that's just good economics. And we at the OC understand good economics. So we are developing exactly what you'd expect, uh, consistent and coherent frameworks for thinking about capital standards based on cash flow risks, even if there's no tangible assets in the balance sheet. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I hope that offers some clarity to any companies that are thinking about pursuing this path. I want to say a big thank you to the three of you and everybody watching today. You can join me in a big virtual round of applause. Um, thank you for this discussion. And I will now hand it over to Jim Dorn and John Allison for some closing remarks. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>